our team just returned from Thailand. Uh, Eleven of us went over there to serve our ministry partners. You'll hear more about that tonight. Our evening service will give an update on how that trip was. Uh, but on the flight, um, this is, I feel like I should have a better illustration from the conference itself. Again, that's tonight. On the flight, though, I watched a movie um, that I want to tell you about. Uh, it was uh, the little seat back thing that, uh, where I was sitting had uh, all of the Lord of the Rings movies. And we were flying for a really long time. Uh, there and back, and so I rewatched Peter Jackson's adaptation of, of Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Rings, and uh, the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and one of the, the most famous lines in that movie uh, is the, 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 the point where uh, Gandalf stands uh, with the Balrog uh, in the mines and, you know, slams down his staff uh, on the bridge of Khazadum and says, you shall not pass, right? Well, my favorite line from Gandalf, that's the, the famous one that, that uh, is in a bunch of memes and people would like to send around. Uh, my favorite line and a line that I think captures more of the totality of Gandalf's uh, kind of uh, character and personality actually occurs earlier in the movie. It's just after Bilbo Baggins has just pulled a, a disappearing act during his 111th birthday. Uh, he uses the ring of power and he disappears and kind of sneaks his way uh, up to his home. And when he gets there, uh, uh, Gandalf is in the house waiting for him and tries to convince him to leave the ring behind as he goes on his journey. This conversation, if you've seen the movie, you remember this. Bilbo says, what business is it of yours what I do with my own things? Gandalf replies, I think you've had that ring quite long enough. And then Bilbo kind of puts up his hands and says, you want it for yourself. And then this, this beautiful moment where, where Gandalf, his arms drop and his shadow fills the room and he stands tall and he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not here to rob you. And he calms down. He says, I'm trying to help you. All these long years we've been friends, trust me as you once did. Well, as I sat down to study our passage that we'll be looking at in the Word this week, I couldn't help but have that scene playing in my mind. The, the Corinthian church who once trusted Paul is now accusing him of deceit and improper motives and taking advantage of them. And I can see Paul boldly standing before the Corinthians saying, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Trust me as you once did. Now, that dynamic that we'll look at in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, it's not just one of historical interest, right? This is an interaction that happened between Paul and this church long ago in a land far, far away. It's not just that, and it's not just of interest to us for biblical literacy. Right? Well, it's good for us to know what's going on in this epistle and what Paul's relationship was like with this church. No, no, the dynamic is something other for us this morning, not just historical interest and not just biblical literacy, as noble as both of those pursuits may be. But I think this text is of contemporary relevance for all of us because Paul defends himself and as he does, we too are instructed, I think, in what true gospel ministry is supposed to look like and what false gospel ministry looks like. 
So in his defense of himself, I'm not trying to rob you, I'm trying to help you, he actually gives some reasons that will help us, each of us, and our church to say, okay, what does true, genuine gospel ministry look like? What does false gospel ministry look like? So that I can both recognize it out there and so that I can engage in it in any of the responsibilities and stewardships that God has given to me. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in your copy of God's Word or in the Pew Bible there in front of you. 2 Corinthians 12, we're nearing the end of the book here. We'll be in uh, chapter, uh, or verse 11 through the end of chapter 12 this morning. So 11, verses 11 through 21, chapter 12. What I want to argue is that genuine gospel ministry gives for the good of others. That's what I want us to see from this text. Genuine gospel ministry gives for the good of others. I've already said this, but I want us to see how we must both recognize and engage in such good gospel ministry, such genuine gospel ministry. Towards that end, as we look here at the text, there's three paragraphs in the text. We'll take each one of those in turn. Kind of three ways to recognize and engage. Number one, recognize and engage in the signs of genuine gospel ministry. That will be point number one, the signs of genuine gospel ministry. Number two, the spending of genuine gospel ministry. The spending of genuine gospel ministry. And then number three, the speaking of genuine gospel ministry. So recognize and engage in genuine gospel ministry because it gives for the good of others. We'll see the signs, the spending, and the speaking. Look at your text. I'll read. You can follow along starting in verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. 
Point number one, recognize and engage in the signs of genuine gospel ministry. Paul here at the beginning of our text, he talks about being a fool. And if you've been following through this uh, narrative, uh, this uh, uh, writing of the book of 2 Corinthians or here for our sermons, that, that's come up a number of times of Paul talking about speaking as a fool or acting as a fool. And, and what he means by that is that he has taken to boasting in his own accomplishments. Uh, the Corinthians were enamored by people who were outwardly flashy and showy and those who had these kind of worldly resumes and, and had all these uh, uh, kind of impressive things that they could say about themselves. And as a result of their being enamored with that kind of teacher, with being enamored with that kind of ministry, they were actually uh, starting to entertain and be led astray by a group of false apostles. We saw that in a text already. False apostles, or Paul here calls them super apostles. They're being led astray by these guys because of this, uh, these worldly credentials and these external uh, impressiveness that they had. And so in order to get their attention, Paul has to start to play their game. So he doesn't want to do it. This isn't, it's kind of inappropriate. It feels kind of awkward for him. But he's doing it so he can get their attention and bring them back to the truth. And so that's why he says there in verse 11 in your text, you can see he says, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. <laughs> he's like, y'all are making me act this way. I don't want to do this. You're making me act this way. If they would have, in the text he says, I should have been commended by you. And so if they would have just commended him and seen the things that he was doing that commended true gospel ministry, there wouldn't have been a problem. They ought to have seen that. And if so, he wouldn't have to engage with them in this way that feels kind of so awkward and inappropriate for him. And the reason, you look there in your text, the reason that he should have been commended, verse 11 continues, he says is that I am in no way inferior to these so-called super apostles. Right, who had won their affections. Paul says, I'm the good guy here. I, I'm for you. And the Corinthians were favoring those who were detrimental to their health. Now, I think it's important to note here, as Paul is uh, just this kind of dynamic between him and them, and them favoring these super apostles and not commending him. It's important to note here, maybe it's obvious, but we should point it out, that, that he's not annoyed that he's not their favorite preacher. That's not the issue, right? Such things are assumed among gospel ministers, right? If anybody ever tells me, hey, you're not my favorite preacher, I'm like, I assumed that, right? Like, I don't, I don't like you as much as I like John Piper. Well, I assumed, me either, right? <laughs> I assumed that to be the case, right? So, so that's not what's going on here. In fact, Paul already dealt with that. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians, right? In 1 Corinthians, he's like, you guys, some people are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And to the extent that that's creating divisions and and, and kind of separations in the church, he says, y'all knock that off. But we're both servants of God. God we're, we're planting and watering and God's giving the growth. I really don't care if you like me or Apollos better. So make a big deal about it. Right? So he's already dealt with that. That's not what's going on here. Right? No, it's not a matter of preference. It's the rejection of the true apostle with genuine gospel ministry. Plus the embracing of false apostles with bad ministry, right? That's what's hard to swallow for Paul. That's what keeps him up at night. That's what forces him to keep pressing in on this. That's what says, I'll act like a fool in order to bring you guys back. That is what is bothering him. They're ignoring and, and relegating and demonizing genuine gospel ministry, the good guys, and they're embracing the bad guys. 
That's what bothers him. Well, now Paul has to act like a fool and get their attention to bring them back. Okay, and then the first thing that he says here of why they should have seen that reality, look at verse 12. He says that there, there were signs, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And then in verse 13, he says, we didn't pull out any stops. Or you, you were shown all the favor of God through our ministry. We, we didn't treat other people better than you. Right? You, you, we, didn't, we didn't hold back on any of that. You were shown all the favor of God through us. The only demerit for us is, is that we didn't burden you financially. Forgive me this wrong, he says sarcastically. Right, forgive me for not taking money from you. That's the only thing bad you got to say about me. Paul feels that the Corinthians should have observed what was happening right in front of them and had an easy time commending the right people and rejecting the wrong people. And they had it twisted. Well, what should they have seen with these signs and wonders and the way he did ministry? Let me suggest three things that I think they should have seen that are apparent in our text. One, they should have seen humility. They should have seen humility. You see that he says, I, I'm not inferior, inferior to the super apostles. He says, even though I'm nothing. Right? Even though I am nothing. Well, which one is it? Are, are you superior to the super apostles or are you nothing? <laughs> which one is it, Paul? And he said, yes, that's the point. That's exactly the point. I am not inferior to these super apostles precisely because I am nothing. I'm not trying to make a big deal about me. I'm not all about me. I'm not all about my ministry. I'm not all about building my own kingdom. Right? That's exactly the point. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. And that's actually what makes me superior to them. They're serving themselves. They're not looking out for your best interests. They're not looking out for your good. They're looking out for themselves. They're padding their own pockets. They're seeking to build their own empires and their own kingdoms. That's what they're all about, and that's why I'm actually superior in my ministry because I'm nothing. <laughs> it's a paradox, but this is exactly what gospel ministry is to look like. And so church, recognize and engage in the signs of true gospel ministry. First and foremost, having a humility that would commend itself as the humility of Christ would, and as Paul is modeling here. Love and appreciate ministry that isn't self-promoting, that doesn't parade itself and make a big deal about itself building its own king kingdom, and then engage in the same. Right? Having a ministry in whatever ways God would give you influence and whatever ways that God would give you uh, stewardship and uh, areas in which you can impact others, that you would engage in that with a humility saying, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what Paul, and Paul's saying, listen, if you guys would have had the eyes to see, you would have seen us engaging in ministry with all humility. Not building ourselves, but building Christ. Not focusing on us, but focusing on him. All right, a second thing that they should have seen. They should have not only seen humility, but they should have seen patience. You should, they should have seen patience. You see that there? That he said, these things were done, done among you with utmost patience. I love that he highlights that here. Right? It wasn't just that he embodied the signs of a true apostle among them, but he did so with the utmost patience. This touches on a, a topic that's been a, a major issue in the world of missions. And if you've 
kind of read or had your ear to the ground on some of the things that were going on in world missions over the last couple of years, you may be aware of this, but there are movements, entire movements of people and sending agencies and organizations that have uh, become enamored with this type of ministry that pursues uh, what is called rapid multiplication or rapid church planting or rapid disciple making movements where the speed and the numbers are the important thing at the expense of the health and the stability. It's seeped in uh, to churches here in the States as well. I've, I've uh, known people who have, who have uh, taken this kind of ministry philosophy as well, of rapid multiplication, rapid church planting, where the idea is to just gather a group of people somewhere on the mission field and, and whoever, you know, has been a Christian, you know, three months versus the two-month-old Christian, give that guy a Bible, you're the pastor. Now in six months we're going to come back and we want to see that replicated. And, and we're calling these churches. We had a very large uh, uh, missions sending organization, I'll reserve the name to protect the guilty, uh, in our city uh, in China that came to us one, one, at one point and told us that they had 250 churches in our city. I've been there six years, haven't met one of them. But because it's just speed, it's speed, it's numbers, it's, it's, it's production, it's production. This is a... a, a this, these kinds of movements have done great harm across the globe. So even in your own supporting of missionaries and your own uh, learning about what people are doing, friends and family and uh, folks that you support, have a radar for the, Is the ministry patient? Or is it a lust for numbers and speed? Gospel work is urgent, but it's not rushed. And again, that's the heart of why people want to move so fast, right? There's an urgency to global evangelization. There's an urgency to gospel ministry. That, and that's a good thing. We want to be urgent, but we're, we're not rushed. We're not rushed to the extent that, that we are calling things churches that aren't churches. or calling people Christians who aren't Christians. And there's a patience to be commended in our ministry. Being in a hurry can result in decisions that are not in the best interest of the people to whom we are ministering. So our lust for speed or for numbers... It doesn't prioritize the health of the people or the stability of the work that, of, that we, uh, the people that we love and are ministering to. Right, so, so we want health for you, not hitting some metric, not producing some sort of number, not meeting some goal. We want health. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, you should have seen this work that we did among you. We, we did it with the utmost patience. We weren't using you. We weren't just a number. We loved you and we pursued you. So friends, recognize that and appreciate that in ministry around you and then engage in the same, right? Minister with patience. It, it, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be times to press a bit harder, a, a bit more firm in those relationships that you have. Indeed, that's what Paul's doing in these letters. That's what he did in his last letter that they were all uh, kind of upset about, that he, he did, had this severe letter that he pressed. There's going to be times to press, but it's all uh, under uh, a, a posture that trusts the sovereignty of God and trusts in his timing and proceeds with a patience about it. Right? Trusting God's sovereignty and his timing, urgent but not rushed. Right, so they should have seen that. This is what he says. You guys should have commended our work because we, they proceeded with humility and they proceeded with patience. A third thing that they should have seen were, were the works that he talks about here. Right, The works that accord with clear and bold preaching of Christ. 
Now, when Paul was in Corinth, we're, we're not sure of what all transpired there. We don't, we don't know kind of what all stands behind these words that he uses, the signs and wonders and, and mighty works. But we do know that even today, true gospel preaching will likewise come with seeing the mighty works of God as he changes lives. As he takes hearts of stone and creates hearts of flesh. We'll see the exact same things. When the gospel is preached and Christ is cherished, people go from death to life. They go from darkness to light. They go from slavery to freedom. We see hardened hearts softened. We see marriages reconciled. We see wounds that are healed. We see perseverance through trials. We see disengaged husbands loving their wives and leading their families. We see wives who are given to uh, bitterness or anger loving and, and respecting their husbands. We see children saved and their entire disposition changed so that it brings life in their family instead of burden. We see them bringing light and joy. We see teens developing an eternal perspective that governs their friendships and their decision making. We see young adults standing for Christ in the midst of secular school environments or work environments. We see senior saints clinging to him with hopefulness and finishing the race well. This is what happens whenever the gospel is proclaimed. We see the mighty works of God working its way in and changing lives. In ways that we all step back and say, I never would have thought I would have seen that. But praise God for the mighty works that he's doing as the gospel is proclaimed and as Christ is magnified. And so we look for that fruit in ministries around us. We look for, for that fruit in this church and we commend such ministry. And then we trust him for the same types of work in our own ministry as he may grant us such fruitfulness. All right, number two. So recognize and engage in genuine gospel ministry. The first thing that Paul says they should have seen here was the signs that they had, the signs of genuine gospel ministry. Number two is the, the spending of genuine gospel ministry. You see that in the second paragraph there. He says, here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents... For their children, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So Paul indicates here in this second paragraph that, that he's hoping to visit them again for the third time. And he's committed to still not being a burden to them. He's, again, that's been a, along with the foolishness, this idea of burdening them, uh, being a drain on them. He's been clear that he does not, that's not how he's operated among them. And he says, that's still going to be my goal. My, still when I come and visit you again, I do not want to be a burden to you in any way. Well, why? Why is this his approach? And, and why can they be so confident that this is what he'll do? Well, he explains it. With, it's just that beautiful line. He says, I seek not what is yours, but you. I seek not what is yours, but you, that is what true Christian ministry looks like. Dear saints, you're not a number to be reported. You're not a bank account to be exploited. You're not a reservoir of energy to be depleted. You're not a cog in a machine to be used. You are not a contact to increase our network. You're not a face to improve our status. You're none of that. 
You're a child of God created in his image. And if you know Christ, you're a son or a daughter, a friend, a saint. And your good for God's glory is our goal as a church. Now, that doesn't mean we won't talk about stuff. It just means we're not after it. Right? We'll talk about money. We'll talk about service. We'll talk about evangelism. We'll talk about gathering here and attendance among the saints as we gather for worship. We'll talk about all those things because the Bible talks about all those things. But we'll talk about them in the same manner in which the Bible does. Through the lens that God wants something for you and not something from you. That, that, that's the same posture that we have as a church. We, we, we're going to talk about all of those things, not because we want something from you, but because we want something for you, and the things that the Bible commands are good for us. And Paul is here focusing on them and saying, I'm, I'm pouring my life out, I'm expending my life. I seek not what is yours, but you. Church, recognize and engage in the spending of genuine gospel ministry. It is ministry that pours itself out for the good of others, for the faith of others. Not, not to get from them, but to grow them. Not that you get something from them, but for them themselves. Now, this is a little tricky because it's, it's not immediately apparent from the external actions themselves as we view and evaluate this. Right? So, for example, a preacher could constantly kind of press in on something or constantly browbeat a congregation over something because he's seeking what is yours, right? Seeking money or seeking attendance or seeking some sort of legalistic obedience that he wants to see in his congregation. And so a preacher could do that. He could constantly kind of browbeat and push and yell and scream from the pulpit in order to see that take place. Or a preacher could pull punches, because he's seeking what is yours, right? He wants those very same things, but he knows that if he presses in on your idols, that money might dry up. He knows that if he presses in on those idols, you might vote with your feet and walk away. Right, so it's not externally apparent what's happening here. And so we have to look deeper. We have to look at the motives. We have to look for a shepherd's heart. We have to look for ministries that, that is going to seek you and not Things from you. Church, pray for wisdom and discernment and compassionate boldness for your leaders, for your pastors. That regardless of action, it will be clear that it, it, it uh, issues forth from a true shepherd's heart. And that you would hold that same tension in your own ministry stewardship. Those who you disciple or share the gospel with. Those in your own family that you are Seeking not what is theirs, but them. Well, Paul illustrates this point with kind of a, a familial illustration. If you look at verse 14, you see that there. He says, children aren't obligated to save up for the, their parents, but the parents for their children. Now, that, that doesn't mean that children aren't to take care of their parents as they age. That, that's actually a very high value in most world cultures. It was a high value in this culture as well, but rather the illustration has to do with, with kind of a snapshot of this responsibility frozen in time when children are children and parents are parents. Right? That, that's where the illustration is coming out of. Doesn't mean those dynamics don't change over the course of life, but the snapshot when kids are kids and parents are parents. And in that snapshot, it's the parents who 
provide for the kids. The parents aren't trying to take from their children or benefit from them in some way, but rather are providing for them. And Paul sees that relationship as analogous to his relationship with them, that he is kind of the, the father, as it were, with this church, and they are the children. And he says, I'm not trying to get from you. I'm trying to provide for you, just like what happened in a healthy family. He doesn't just seek their stuff, but he seeks them, just like what will happen in healthy families. Now, kind of let me give one of those little sidebar applications here for a second. The point of what he's saying right here isn't parenting, and yet there's application for parenting. He's using this, this illustration because it's true. Right? He's using this illustration because it's a true thing. It illustrates uh, the point precisely because it is true. And so sidebar application, parents, seek not things from your kids, but seek them. Seek not to get, but to grow. Right, that, that, that is the illustration. That is the point that he's making. And so beware in our parenting of pushing your kids towards a career path or towards a certain school or towards a certain classification of school because that's what you want. Whether money that you might get from that profession that that kid might have or the prestige that comes from your kid going to an Ivy League school, beware of pressing so that you might get something rather than desiring their good. Right? Beware of pushing them in a skill, whether it's athletic or academic or music or theater or whatever it is, for, for scholarships merely or for status rather than for their good. That you want to see them flourish and them grow. Beware of disciplining or correcting behavior because of the way it affects our own impatience or being imposed upon or our desire to project a certain status to others in the church when we're together versus a desire that, no, I, I want obedience for you because it's good for you and because God commands it. And he's given me to you as your dad, as your mom, to see that because he knows what is going to lead to your flourishing. Not just that I'm going to be embarrassed that my kid's acting up. Sidebar over. Put another way, verse 16, to the point that he's making here, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. But again, Paul glories in, in pouring himself out for the faith of others. And then he, he rattles off kind of five rhetorical questions after this that are all kind of proving this same point that he's not taking advantage of them. He's not there to get things from them. Right? He's, he's not there for them to spend themselves for him, but he's spending himself for them. So rattles off these five rhetorical questions. He, he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? Right? The answer is no. Right? Loving you more in this way, you should love me more in response. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? Right? Crafty and deceitful that they're accusing of? No. That wasn't true at all. I'm not trying to take advantage by sending these people to you. The, both the way I acted among you and the way that anybody I sent acted among you, we all acted the same thing, for your good. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? The answer is no, he didn't. Did we not act in the same spirit? The answer is yes, we did. The final one there, did we not take the same steps? The answer is yes, 
We did Paul and company. Anybody who was ministering among them were pouring themselves out for their faith. Were spending and being spent for their good. Friends, this is what genuine gospel ministry does. It doesn't take advantage of people, but it expends itself for their good. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just wonder what your experience with this has been. Just what we're saying right now of of ministries and churches or ministers, pastors, preachers, of, of, of using people versus pouring themselves out for their good. I'm curious what your experience has been with religion and with Christianity. I wonder if you've been turned off by ministries or pastors or churches that you just suspect are up to something. Got, I know that's what they're saying, but they have some sort of ulterior motive here. If you've had that experience, friends, I, I'm, I'm, we're sorry that that's the case. And we want you to know that that is a distortion of Christianity, not the real deal. It's not the real thing. That's a distortion of Christianity, using people, ulterior motives, trying to get things. Right? We don't want anything from you. We want life and joy for you. And now, <laughs> I get it, right? Saying, hey, we're not up to anything sketchy here, sounds exactly like something somebody would say if they're up to something sketchy. Right? We're not trying to use you. It sounds exactly like something somebody would say if they're trying to use you. So the best thing we can do is show you Jesus and say, do we line up to him? Are we, to the best of our ability, by God's grace, trying to act as he would and follow his example? Right? We want to be like him because this is what Paul is doing, really, isn't it? He, he, he's living out the model of Christ. This is exactly what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Listen to this. Paul wrote to the Philippian church and he says, do nothing, see if this sounds familiar, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right? Trying to get for yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, already talked about that, he's shown his humility, I am nothing. In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind, this mind that I'm talking about, looking out for others, others are more important, others are more significant. Have this mind in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And he talks about the gospel, right? Jesus, God, humbled himself, emptied himself, took on humanity, and came and died all the way to death. He did this all the way to death, that he became a man and then died in your place for your sins, taking your punishment on himself. He did all of that because he wasn't just focused on himself. He was focused on us. He wasn't just trying to get from us. He was trying to give to us. He wasn't trying to avoid pain. He was trying to help us avoid pain. He wasn't trying to avoid death himself. He was trying to go to the cross and die because the way for us to have true life through his death and his glorious resurrection, that if we trust in that, we might defeat death. He's, he resurrected as the first fruits that any who trusts in him will likewise be raised to newness of life. That, that's what Paul is all about. So friends, if, if, if that's you and you're like, man, I've been around some churches. I think they're up to something. Look to Jesus and follow him. And then look for Christians and churches who are just going to constantly point to Jesus. Imperfect though we are, faltering though we may be, 
saying he is the message. He is the model. We want to be like him. We want to pour ourselves out and serve because we want your good for you to be better. We are going to pour ourselves out for the faith of others. And Christians, I wonder what it would look like for you to lead in this way, in whatever context God has you, whether that's ministry or where you work, what breath of fresh air might this bring, especially for those of you who work in a culture that is the exact opposite of this. You don't serve others. You, get, you go and take what you want. You, you don't build others up because they are going to take that rung on the ladder that you want. You don't lead in such a way that would, that, would, that would elevate others because of what if they come for your job. What if people are talking about them now instead of talking about you? Christians, lead in this way. Teachers, lawyers, government employees, expend yourself for the good of others to build them up for their upbuilding. This is the way of Christ. What would it look like for you to act this way in your own family, siblings, kids, even as you're considering this text and looking at and just asking that question, what would it look like in my home, what would it look like in my family to not just look out for my own interests all the time? What would it look like for me to serve mom and dad? What would it look like for me to let my sibling have the last word? What would it look like for me to live so that I can build up others and bring value and add and see them flourish and see them have joy and live for their happiness versus my own? The way of Christ is completely countercultural and it brings life and freedom and joy and happiness everywhere we see it. All right, number three. We've seen the, the signs of genuine ministry. We've seen the spending of genuine ministry. It pours itself out for the good of others. And then finally, we will see the speaking of genuine gospel ministry. The speaking of genuine gospel ministry. That's our final paragraph there. He says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? No, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For your edification, beloved. Ideally, the Corinthians would have recognized the, the signs of true apostles among them. They would have recognized the expending that the apostles had, giving themselves. And then here, the final thing Paul wants to ensure that they are seeing rightly is they're speaking among them. And he has another rhetorical question there that we began with. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? The question is, we, the answer is we, we haven't. Paul's goal wasn't to defend himself because his main concern wasn't himself. Right? He wasn't defending himself. That wasn't his goal. That wasn't his main objective because his main objective was to build them up. And so they have been speaking in Christ, he says, and doing it for their upbuilding, their edification. Speaking in Christ is to, is to filter everything through the, the grid of a life lived in submission to Jesus. Right? Embodying his character, sharing his outlook, speech seasoned with his virtue, life lived for gospel 
purposes, the glory of and enjoyment of and joy in Jesus being the theme of your speech and the theme of your conversations and the theme of your counseling and the theme of your ministry so that others would be edified by looking more like him, by speaking more like him, by thinking more like him, by acting more like him. The goal of true gospel ministry is not to promote itself, but to seek the good of the hearer. He says, this is what we've been committed to and honestly punished by the Corinthians for doing. Christians, what we have to offer is Jesus. This is, this is our focus when we gather here on the Lord's Day. This is what we have to offer. It's what we have to offer in our counseling. It's what we have to offer in our discipleship relationships. It's what we have to offer in our fellowship groups. That your love for him would grow and consume you. That your joy in Christ would govern you. That your hopefulness about this life and the life to come would anchor you throughout all of your doubts and questions. That you would not despair. That your obedience would be rooted in him, desiring to walk in a manner worthy of him who has called you because he saved you to follow him and to resemble him. To walk in a manner worthy of the son who redeemed you and the father who called you and the spirit who sealed you. That you would know this, that, that, that all your failures and setbacks and struggles would all be governed by the same gospel. That we strive for holiness, but we also know that when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father interceding for us. This is what happens when we're spoken to in Christ. When he's the theme, when the gospel is our goal. So that even though none of us have arrived yet, we are growing and maturing. We're not perfect, but we're perfectible. We haven't arrived yet, but that's our goal. Our sights are set there, and we're helping one another along in that direction. Willing and submissive to his work in our lives as our speech is changed, as our actions are changed, as our motives are changed. Church, when, when you're being spoken to in Christ, that's what he's saying here. We, we, we came and we spoke to you in Christ. When you're spoken to in Christ, you're different. When you're given a steady diet of Jesus and the gospel, you're changed. And when you then turn around and offer that very same meal to others around you, you get to see the same thing happen. We all get to observe it and see that life change and see that miraculous work in others' lives as well. And when that isn't the case, we see the exact opposite happen. Which is exactly why I think Paul shares his fears of what he's going to find when he shows up in Corinth. The rest of those verses in our text, did you, did you see that? Twice he says, I fear, I, I'm coming to you for the third time, and I fear I'm going to find you not as I hope to. Why? Because these false apostles haven't been speaking in Christ. These false apostles haven't been serving up the gospel. These false apostles haven't been giving a healthy meal of God's word pure and unadulterated. They've been looking out for themselves. And when people are ministered to in that way, look at what it produces. He says there in verses 20 and 21, you see that he, a couple fears. 
You see it in verse 20, he says, I fear that perhaps when I come, and then verse 21, I fear that when I come. The first one there in verse 20 says he fears that when he arrives, he'll find quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I I don't think the point, I mean, we we certainly could take each one of those and kind of double-click on it and investigate what each one of these words means. I, I don't think the point here is to dig into each and every one of those words individually and dissect them all, but rather you'll note that that entire list has to do with interpersonal relationships. Did you note that? That entire list is interpersonal relationships, especially regarding our speech with one another. Right? When we are more concerned about speaking in Christ for the upbuilding of other people, it produces kindness. It produces deference. It produces forbearance with one another. It produces assuming the best about each other. It produces encouragement with one another. It produces pointing out evidences of grace that we see in each other's lives. It produces confession of sin with each other. It produces repentance with each other. It produces exhortation with one another from God's word. That's what it produces when we are speaking to one another in Christ. What the Corinthians have done. Has become enamored with ministers, quote unquote, who are all about themselves and their own impressiveness and their own kingdom. And guess what gets reflected in a congregation? We reflect what we're enamored by. We reflect it. And that's why Paul fears he's going to find this. You know, just an encouragement for us again, as, as we were just in Thailand, I was meeting with a number of pastors and uh, on a couple different occasions, I don't know why people are just following geopolitics and things going on around the world, but a couple different times I had pastors from other countries ask me, as a pastor in the D.C. area, how our church does, uh, uh, how, how do you think things are going to go, you got an election coming up, what's it going to be like, how are things, how to go in 2020? I've been asked this question before, but it's fresh, it was just asked to me a couple of times, and you know, my honest response is, you know, it, it hasn't been a huge issue. Again, minor kind of squabbles and things that, that, that may happen. But I say, honestly, it hasn't been a huge issue. And I think it's because of this. I truly do. So church, what's going to get us through this next election season? It's this. It's speaking to one another in Christ. Because if not, you know what's going to happen? Look at it. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I think that that as a church, as a whole, we have a desire, by God's grace, I pray that this will continue, we have a desire, a genuine desire to want to focus on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is what Lord willing and by his grace will see us emerge in health and unity through another election season here in D.C. It's speaking to one another in Jesus. It's seeking to build each other up. It's not concerned about my own agendas, but what is good for you. Abandon that, and we'll be full of quarreling and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and disorder. Have his word as primary, and the gospel as your first and foremost concern. Speak in Christ. And the same dynamic manifests itself with sins of the body. That's the next fear that he has, right? So he fears these interpersonal speech-oriented things. And then he also fears sensuality. Look at verse 21. This is the second fear. God may humble me before you. He's gonna, he did all this work among them. And God may just humble him by finding them in a way that he 
I was hoping he wouldn't find them, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Again, this is all downstream of the kind of teaching that they've been getting and the kind of leadership to whom they've been submitting. The flashy super apostles don't care about the Corinthians. They care about themselves. And when that happens, there won't be an encouragement toward what would make for good health of the church. There won't be an encouragement toward fighting of sin. There won't be an encouragement towards the repenting of immorality. There won't be encouragement towards honesty and authenticity and and vulnerability in relationships. Nobody is loving them enough to keep their feet to the fire in those areas. And so Paul says, because of what you've been enamored by, I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. But if they'll listen to Paul, who is preaching the true gospel for their good, exalting Jesus for their good, speaking in Christ for their upbuilding, then they'll hear a message of forgiveness and freedom and holiness and righteousness and empowering by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. They'll cherish a lifestyle of repentance that would not have them feeling entitled or complacent or unconcerned about their personal holiness, but would rather have them clinging to the good commands of God's word, knowing, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what they'll find. Well, church, I hope you see here and have been convinced of genuine gospel ministry that gives for the good of others. We're not a perfect church, but that's our goal. Help us to do this well. Pray for us toward this end. Engage in that in your own way and in your own ministry, environments, and stewardships that God gives to you. Pray for us and pray for yourselves and pray for each other that we would indeed recognize and engage in the the signs and the spending and the speaking of genuine gospel ministry. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help in living this out. God, help us by your spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to pursue righteousness and holiness and godliness. God, help us to strengthen us for this pouring of ourselves out for others. God, would you guard us against any desire that would would not comport itself with the gospel? Would you guard us from any desire that would seek to build our own kingdoms or to to, to, um, focus on ourselves or to get rather than to seek the good of others around us. God, help us, we pray, by your spirit and for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.